Verse 11, as Kathy read for us, and this uh, verse 11 through 14 that we read really comes to the end of this long song of blessing that began all the way in verse 3 of Paul, um, as he, after he introduces himself and, and proclaims uh, his message and why he's writing to the church at Ephesus, he then begins blessing the Lord back in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he goes on, and so we've been just opening that up, all of these things that Paul is, is blessing the Lord and saying thanks to the Lord for, praising his name because of who he is and what he has done. And he's been expounding on the joy that we should also feel, just as he felt in uh, praising the Lord. This is the joy that we should know and feel because of who we are in Christ. And so as he comes to this section, he closes with a reminder that everything, because of who we are in Christ, everything is going to be okay. Don't you wonder sometimes, you find yourself in life wondering, is this situation, is, is the details that are unfolding before you, is it going to work out? Is it going to be okay? We ask ourselves whether it's we're facing sickness or we have job situations or there's relationship strife, whatever. There's so many areas of our lives we sit and we might ask ourselves, I'm just not sure. And so Paul reminds us, for those of us who know the Lord, who have been called, who have been adopted as his sons and daughters because of who he is, everything will be okay. Brothers and sisters, wherever you are, whatever you are facing today in this moment, you need to know it's going to be okay. It's going to work out for your good and for his glory. There's no trial that you could face that is outside and not able, God not able to work itself for, his, for our good and for his glory. He is sovereign. And so that sovereignty of God is something that we're going to hear in these verses. We are heard it already read for us. You know, the sovereignty of God is something when we hear about it, and we probably think to ourselves, wouldn't shock me, it would be totally okay if you said, yeah, I, I, of course, he's God. What makes him God is that he's in charge. He's in control. That's why he's God. But the doctrine of God's sovereignty should really be so much more to us. It should carry so much more weight than I think it does. In the words of Jonathan Edwards, it should be exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. The fact that God is sovereign should give us so much comfort and peace. His rule should cause us to have peace. And it should allow us to have an outlook on life that is joyous. You know, I understand we all deal with really hard things. This life, this week, I can't, you know, put myself in your shoes to know exactly what you might be dealing with. But no matter what it is that you are wrestling with, that you're dealing with, don't be pessimistic. Have joy. Have hope. Have peace. Because God is sovereign. And if we think about this, just in the context of what we've studied in the first few verses of this chapter, or in this book, I apply it to my own life. Here I am, a sinful human being, unworthy of God's love. God would be completely right and just in tossing me aside and condemning me for who I am. 
It's what I know I deserve. That's, that's the reality. I'm just telling you right now. I know in my own heart that's what I deserve. And instead, what we've heard from the Lord through this book of Ephesians is that God has chosen to redeem my life, to adopt me as his son, and secure a future of unending joy for me. As the psalmist would say, the lines that he has drawn for me have surely fallen in pleasant places. That's my life. Everything, no, has it been easy? Of course not. I deal with my own flesh. I wrestle with that. There's the brokenness of the world around us. Life isn't easy. But the knowledge of what he has done for me gives me that blessed assurance to know that everything will ultimately work out for my good. And I don't deserve that. That's mercy. That's why we say and we sing, my sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So here's the deal. We can disobey God's will. Some of you are asking that. Well, that sounds great. God is sovereign and he's over all things. and Everything's going to work out for, you know, okay. But I, I see all this, you know, I know I choose poorly. I sin and I've just confessed to you that I do the same. Yes, we can disobey God's will, but here's the good news. Even in our disobedience to his God's will, we cannot subvert his purposes. God's sovereignty means that he will and can overrule even our disobedience in such a way that it accomplishes his purposes. Think about this. There are many, many reasons in my life, if you have known me a little bit of time, You've heard me talk about my life as I try to do rather transparently with those that I'm around. There's so many reasons in my life that I should have rejected God, that I should have turned away from him, that I should have said, no, I don't believe who you are and I don't believe what you say. But he chose to adopt me and make me his son. And so the very things that would have caused me to disagree with him, to turn away from him, are the things that are in my testimony now that proclaim his goodness and his sovereignty. Those very things that the will of man that I would have said, no, I should turn and run away from God because there's no way he could be who he says he is, he could be good, are the very things that I testify to as how God adopted me and brought me into his family. He used those things to draw me in. And so they become a part of my salvation story. Who else, what else other than a sovereign God could take the disobedience of our flesh and our sinfulness and the sinfulness of those around us and use those things to turn them around and draw us to himself. Only a good and sovereign God could do that. So we get to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, and this is what Paul is saying in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things according to the counsel of his will. And what did he do all of this for? Let's go back to verse 5. If you were with us just a couple weeks ago, verse 5 says this, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And then verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. 
So jumping down now here again, he repeats this idea in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. We exist to bring glory to God. That's why God created us. That's why we are here. And that's why he chooses and he uses even those things, those disobedience, those things of brokenness, the sins of our life. He uses all of those things to accomplish his purposes for our life. Now, up to this point, Paul's blessing, he's spoken about our general election, our our adoption, our salvation, sort of generally just speaking about all people. He hasn't addressed a people group in this. He's been addressing all of those of us who are in Christ, all Christians, as we might say. And he's been speaking to us in those general terms. But here in verse 12 and following, he he makes a bit of a shift. And he gets specific in speaking to the Ephesians about their adoption as Gentiles. And the reason that he gets specific about that is because their adoption as Gentiles is one of the reminders of the fact that we should marvel at how God works. Because Gentiles, guess what? They didn't deserve salvation. They weren't God's chosen people. They weren't the sons of Abraham. They didn't have the right lineage. And those of the religious leaders of the day were happy to remind them of that fact and to cast them out. They didn't have the right pedigree to be chosen or adopted as sons and daughters. All of us in this room are Gentiles, undeserving. Here, Paul, he gets specific about this, and that's why in verse 12, I want to point this out. When he speaks and he uses the we and you, it it helps us understand who he's speaking to. In verse 12, he says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That we there, he's speaking to the Jewish community, his brothers and sisters of the Jewish lineage. We, the gospel Jesus, was a Jew. He came and he uh, called apostles. There were Jewish disciples that followed him. And so the message, his gospel, went to the Jews first. But God, in his kindness, didn't leave it there. He sent the messenger, Paul being one of these apostles, to go to the Gentile community to reach outside of the Jewish faith. But he, there in verse 12, he's speaking specifically about the Jews who were the first to hope in Christ. But then in verse 13, he continues that, excuse me, in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, also believed in him. I misspoke there. I said verse 13, I meant 12. 12 is speaking to the Jewish community. 13, you is speaking to the Gentiles. Just so I don't create any confusion in my disaster. So that we, verse 12, who are first to hope in Christ, the Jewish community, might be to the praise of his glory. Then in him you also, and now he is speaking to the Gentiles, you who are Gentiles. But how did he do this? How did he reach the Gentiles? What did he do in their life? Verse 13 is a point of emphasis for us. Verse 13 says, In him you also, 
In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. He's describing for us what salvation is. Sometimes we use that word, a little, we kind of toss it around a little bit. Have you been saved? I, I was saved at this point in my life. We tell the story of our salvation. We think about salvation. And if that's unfamiliar to you, by the way, I was an adult before I ever heard the word saved. I remember I grew up, I didn't grow up in a church that uh, really used that language and uh, the, that, you know, just talked a lot about the gospel ultimately, unfortunately. And so when I, I met some friends and they're like, well, when did you get saved? And I'm like, I, I haven't ever been drowning. Um, I don't remember if there was an EMT involved. You know, I just, it was a foreign, foreign concept to me. I didn't understand what that meant. So that might be you. You might be here this morning and think, they use this strange word, save. What are we saved from? Well, we are saved from who we are in the fact that what I testified to you earlier, that God would be right and just to just cast me off and discard me and say, and condemn me. So I was saved, I was redeemed, I was saved from that future and brought into a different future out of God's kindness and mercy. And how did he do that? In verse 13 it says, in him, and he's pointing to Christ. How did the Gentiles come to faith? They came in him. The filthy and unclean world came to be included in God's great hope by receiving the blessing of being included in God's family. We received adoption through Christ in Him. Now this in Him is a big term. Paul uses the, the words in Him over and over and over again all throughout his letters. You'll see it in Romans, Galatians, all over the place. Paul uses this, this, this phrase, in Him. So I want to unpack that of what it means to be in Him. First it means complete and radical transformation. That's why Kathy read for us 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, a new creation. The original language here, the Greek, would be, help us kind of understand the radicalness of this transformation because it really says, if in Christ, new creation. There's no verbs there. It just is sort of like a, we would probably use a, a colon. If in Christ equals new creation. If we are in him, then we are new. We cannot be in him and still old because it says the old has passed away. If we're in him, we are new, radically new. This is why Jesus didn't come. We all, all the time we say it in this place. He did not come to make bad people good. Because the word says that we've been made new. He says he came to make dead people alive. So being in him, what it means is you've been made alive. You've been resurrected, brought to life. Nothing of the old remains because it all has died. Being in Christ equals, if we say we are in him, we have been made alive. And as people, brothers and sisters, who've been made alive, our lives are forever and completely reoriented. This happens because everything about how we see the world is new. In kids' church, they often use the picture of the caterpillar and the butterfly. 
Just imagine that. If you were once a caterpillar and everything around you, the way you oriented with the world, the way you saw the world, the way you lived and did everything, everything was about being on the ground, crawling around. Your perspective was probably always looking up. When you have been made new and you're now a butterfly, is anything about your life the same? No. There is nothing about your life that exists the same. It is all completely new. That's what it means for us if we are in him to be made alive. The world, especially here in the Bible Belt, you'll hear this term perhaps. Pastors use this term, so maybe we don't use this all the time in kind of normal talk. But you'll hear the phrase if you read a little bit around news or theological discussions about nominal Christianity or nominal Christians. If there's any time a survey is done about sort of the state of belief in the country, there might be these different categories. And one of the categories might be called a nominal Christian. The Bible knows nothing of a nominal Christian. You are either dead or you are alive. I'm not somewhat alive. I can't be, my wife cannot be, somewhat pregnant. We are either alive or we are dead. It's an either-or thing. The Bible knows nothing of nominal, light, halfway. I kind of want to put my toe in the water and just sort of dabble in this thing called Christianity. That doesn't exist. There's no reality of that. And so as our culture, as we look at the culture, and we even then evaluate, and we shouldn't look outside of ourselves. I heard a quote this week, if you read the Bible and it causes you to think of others first before you think of yourself, then you're reading it wrong. As we read the Bible and we hear God's word and we analyze ourselves, I need to look inside my own heart and soul and mind and say, am I trying to live a life as someone who's been made alive in him living as a dead person? But that's what we do. That's our sin, and our flesh draws us into that. If we are in Christ, that means our lives are ruled by Christ. Because elsewhere Paul talks about being in Christ, having put him on. And our lives cannot ever be the same once we are in Christ. Secondly, being in Christ, what it means is, or being in him, it means that we have become part of the body of Christ. That's why I so often say salvation is never a private thing. Being in him, being made alive is nothing private. Yes, it happens personally. It happens to us individually. We are not at one point, we didn't all as a group get collectively saved into this body. But as we are brought into the family of God, we are adopted as brothers and as sons and daughters and then therefore become brothers and sisters. And we're made a part of his body. Being in him means that we are a part of his body. We're saved into community. Again, this is why we emphasize the church, the local church, as so vital and important to your life. I, I get it. And perhaps you've been exposed to other situations that are different than what we have here, but I just want you to know our heart. You might think that this idea of us talking about the church, being committed to the church, being a part of the church, having your life rooted in the church, all of that, oh, it sounds self-serving. These guys just want to have a big group when they come and talk. Oh, they just need some money around so they can do all the dreams that they have. I just want to testify to, it has nothing to do with that. No. Yes, our sinful flesh can creep up and we can mess up and do things, but our heart is this. It's the word of God that we are in him. 
It's not about self-serving. It's because for us to be who we are, to be the people who have been made alive, means that we exist together in community. He's given us this body. We can't be in him and not in his body, a part of his body. It's vital to your life. So no, it's not about some self-serving, idolatrous idea that we say and testify and encourage and exhort and proclaim to you the value of this gathering on Sunday mornings, the value of the community that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ, the value of committing to it and saying that I'm going to put this as the, 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 the foundation of my family and everything that we do. None of that is self-serving. It's all because it's vital to who we are. I can just, I, I've told you before, and you think it's my job, but I promise you if it wasn't my job, we'd still be here. Long before it was my job, I was here. Maybe not in this place, but I was gathered with the saints because it's vital to my life. If I did not have the body of Christ surrounding me, with me, encouraging me, exhorting to me, I would, I would be out in the wilderness. We sing the song, prone to wander the old hymn. My heart, how it's prone to wander. Without the body of Christ, without being rooted in him, I would be wandering out in the wilderness. That's who I would be. I'm just, I promise you. It's because of the body of Christ that I am here and I have life. To be in Christ means to be a part of his body. Our oneness with Christ brings oneness with other believers who are also in Christ, in him. And that oneness should trump, and does trump, by the way, there's not really an alternative to this, that oneness trumps every other marker of our identity. We've spoken these first few weeks about this identity that we have in Christ. The Bible says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. Why? Because we are all one in Christ. So it's a mistake when we try and find unity among our teammates over the body of Christ. It's a mistake when we try to find unity in our politics over the body of Christ. It's a mistake when we try to find unity in a friend group over the body of Christ. All of the groups that you're associated with, they can be okay. I'm not saying that there's anything inherently wrong with those things. They are often even good. But when the unity that you experience and the devotion that you have is more committed to those things other than the body of Christ, our allegiance is wrong. We've misplaced our hope. We found it in something else. Some of you might have family members or friends. They've said this to you. You know, I have no use for organized religion. I, you know, I'm a spiritual person, but I've got no use for organized religion. That's a, that's a dominant thought in our day. It's rooted primarily in our pride because we like our independence and we don't want to be committed to anything that would say, I'll lay my life down, even though that's the call of Scripture for the Christian. I'll lay my life down for this body. But it's also this because of we've made the organization the so-called religious people, and they, it doesn't look anything like the body of Christ. That's why they don't like the organized religion. Being in Christ, though, should create such a unity that there is diversity. And if you look around this room, just in this small gathering of the saints, tremendous diversity. 
And I don't just mean that in the cultural way in terms of ethnic heritage or any of those types of things. Diversity in thought, diversity in age, diversity in all of these things, that is a beautiful picture. Because guess what? This is what heaven's going to look like. It's going to be every tongue and tribe. Every nation will be represented together, worshiping. Every knee will be bowed, proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. And that unity will not be based on a uniform, a party, a friend group, or any of those other sorts of things. That unity will come as we all submit our lives and say, He is greater. That's what it means to be in Him. Just as a side note, in the local context of our church, next Sunday morning on the 8th, and then again on the 15th, if I have my dates correctly, I'm going a little bit ad-lib here, but we're going to have our covenant partnership class. And that's what it means when we talk about, and some of you might be curious if you're new here, what does it mean to become a member of the Parks Church? We have a, a phrase we use, it's called covenant partnership. We commit covenant, very similar to the word that is used in marriage, covenant to partner together as one in Christ to see the kingdom of God brought to Melissa and beyond. That's what we do here. And so if you haven't committed, if you haven't declared as one who is in him that you are a part of the body of Christ and that that unity that you have is important to you and vital to your life, I want to invite you. We're moving it to Sunday morning at 930 so all the old school Sunday school friends, let's come on. 9.30 before service, we'll be done in time to come and gather here and worship. We'll do it two weeks in a row. So come and join us. Be a part of what is happening here. Be in Him together. Finally, being in Christ, to be in Him, what it means is that we have total satisfaction or peace. Those of us who are in Christ we find no other fulfillment. It means that the pleasures of this world cannot satisfy. Being in Christ fulfills all of our desires and needs. Here's what I know. I can eat the greatest steak on the planet. I've done it six times. <laughs> six hours later, I'm hungry. I don't care how great it is. Wagyu cooked medium to perfection, just salt and pepper. Six hours later, I'm not satisfied. That's a silly example of all the other trivial things that we go looking for our life in, trying to satisfy, looking for pleasure in, looking to find some sort of just relief. All of the ailments that you know in your head are rooted in the fact that we don't find our total satisfaction and peace in Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will not be thirsty. That's a promise of Jesus. All of the other things of the world, they won't satisfy. They won't. They'll fade away. 
As I look around the room and knowing a few of your stories more personally, and I'm not going to call you out, but I know you've attempted, hey, I thought this would satisfy me. Just like me, I thought this would work. I thought this would work. I thought money would be it. I thought if I got that house, that would be it. I thought if I got that job, that would be it. I finally, if I finally got that boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, spouse, wife, whatever, that would satisfy. Over and over again, I tried the drink and it didn't work. It doesn't satisfy. Our satisfaction being in Christ, being in Him, says that we are totally at peace in Christ. Only in Christ are we made alive. And only in Christ do we experience a union with Him and the type of unity amongst other believers, other human beings that lasts forever. And only in Christ will we ever be truly satisfied. This is the amazing work that, of Christ that Paul is marveling at here in this text. He's thinking of the Ephesians, Gentiles. He's imagining them and realizing only an amazing and good and gracious and merciful God would see these people that I grew up being told to hate that I grew up being told are filthy, that I grew up being told are not worthy in any way of receiving God's mercy. And yet, just like me, he has adopted them as sons and daughters. I think Paul in his heart is marveling at this and saying, if, if he adopted them, I, I, I don't even know what to say about it, he's thinking in his heart. It's what amazement that he would look at these people and he would choose them. And that he's calling the Ephesian church to remember that beautiful gospel message. Finally, in closing, in verse 13 and 14, he says, he reminds us of the assurance of our salvation. We have our salvation. What does it mean to be saved? It means that we are in Him. You know what I would encourage us, just as a side note, sometimes you might ask, are you a Christian? Here's how I would respond to that. I am found in Christ, yes. I'm in Him. That's who I am. That's my identity. Christian these days is kind of thrown about all over the place, and sadly it's lost a little bit of its meaning and purpose. But the Word of God, what it means to be Christian, means that I am in Him. I'm his. And how do I know that? Verse 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, what happened? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Notice he said in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. And should we ever doubt that we have obtained an inheritance, we have the Holy Spirit in verse 14 that reminds us of that. It's the mark. What does it mean to be sealed with the Holy Spirit or sealed with this promise? In the ancient world, ownership was noted by a mark or a seal. If, they sent, if a king sent a letter, and you've often seen this, I'm thinking of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. He would seal the letter with the, the pour the wax and seal his mark on it, and that declared that this is a message of the king. More recent history, livestock marked with a brand. Wandering around, the marks note who is the owner, who has possession of that. And what Paul is telling us here is that those of us who have been redeemed, we've been purchased through the blood of Christ, have also been branded. We've been marked, sealed. And the mark that we have is the mark of the Holy Spirit. God has marked our hearts with His own Spirit. So how do you know that you've been made alive, that you are in Him? 
because the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That's Romans 8. The Holy Spirit seals us and testifies and tells us. And that seal assures us of who we belong to. So when we find ourselves adrift and we find ourselves wondering, have we really been made alive? Because I found today, I woke up this morning and my heart was still rather sinful. The Holy Spirit then testifies. You know that sinfulness that you know of? Guess why you know of that sinfulness? Because I, God, living in you, have convicted you and have said, yes, that was sin that you just thought about this morning, Ryan. And so the Holy Spirit assures me of my salvation. It assures me that I've been marked. It assures me that I have been adopted. And so when I'm also drifting off and I'm not finding satisfaction or peace, from God because I've forgotten that I'm in Him. It's the Holy Spirit that reminds me to find my peace and my joy and my satisfaction in Him alone. When I drift off from the body and I become isolated, and guess what happens when I come isolated? The thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, who does he cling to? He comes after the weak, those who are far off and have drifted outside of the flock, and he gets his claws in you. How do you know that you are there? Because the Holy Spirit tells you, this is the enemy, run, flee, turn to Jesus, turn away from what you have done, and be reminded of who you are. Run back to the body. Run to the people who love you unconditionally. Run to the people who always say you are accepted and loved and I don't care what you do, what you say, how you do it, you will be received with grace and mercy. All of that, all of those words that you hear, and sometimes, yes, they are the still, small voice, and you have to listen intently to hear them. That's the power of the Holy Spirit who has marked you, and he declares to you that you are alive. You are not dead, so stop acting like a dead person. Be alive. Having been made new, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, and we hear from him, and we are reminded that there is an inheritance coming. An inheritance the likes of which we have never seen. We will sit and we will feast on God. And so, yeah, that great steak that I've had that I love, guess what it is? It's just a foretaste of the feast that I will have with Christ. The beauty of this body, what it means to me personally, not because I am Pastor Ryan, but because what it means to me as a sinner a neighbor of these brothers and sisters, a friend of these brothers and sisters in Christ, it means that I'm going to experience a family. It's just a foretaste. When we get to sing to Jesus, it's just a taste of what we're going to get to do for all eternity. And guess what? Gentiles and Jews, an amazing fact. God has brought us into the family of God. Finally, I just want to close with this. If we look at Paul's song all through 3, verses 14. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. When we live as people who have been made alive, we bring glory to God. We honor Him. And so, as we end our service, you might have picked up on it, we have adjusted our liturgy a little bit, and so this is a little bit out of ordinary, and I know some of us that are OCD, we like our rhythms and we like everything to be the same, so we're mixing it up, but we're going to close today. We're going to respond to this good news that we just heard, I pray. By singing and praising God, bringing glory to his name for his awesome, awesome might and power.
Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have adopted me as a son, unworthy of your grace and mercy. And I pray, as one who's been marked and sealed by your Holy Spirit, I hold on to that promise, Lord Jesus, and I ask that you would help me to live as someone who is found in you. Help me to live as someone who's been made alive and continually, day by day and even moment by moment, let go of death, which clings to my flesh and tries to influence me and cause me to turn away. As we sing now, Holy Spirit, I ask that the truth of your word would fall on hearts that need to hear it. Anything that I've said that is a lie or is not from you, let it just be forgotten. But as we sing, Lord, would you let your truth sink deeply in? And if there's anyone in here who doesn't have, hasn't experienced the joy and peace of being made alive, let today be the day of salvation. Holy Spirit, do your work as you convict and you call sinful, broken, dead people, and you raise them to new life. Would you do that even in this moment? We believe and trust that you have the power to do that, God. And so we ask that you do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing. Every knee will bow, every eye will see. Thanks for listening to the Parks Church of Melissa podcast. We meet at 1030 Sunday mornings at Melissa Middle School, and we look forward to seeing you there soon. The Parks Church, for the city about a person.